discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. everyone new year new channel art and new music thank you so much to the incredibly talented Menica Repka of Nooch Design Co that's at Nooch Design Co on Instagram for the new channel art we absolutely love it this is Rodney the anti-fascist raccoon so uh just absolutely love that and thank you also to the incredibly talented Labor Kyle for the new intro music featuring some of the revolutionary women that we look up to the most. We just absolutely love that as well. Um, Labor Kyle is at Labor Kyle on Twitter and on YouTube, and he's making just absolute masterpieces on YouTube. So definitely go check those out. Uh, Labor spelled in the American way. <laughs> So yeah, we're, we're just excited about the fresh new face of the podcast, the fresh new sounds of the podcast, um, and we're starting the year off by talking to Rachel and Asante of the Reach Out Response Network in Toronto. This is a network dedicated to revolutionizing crisis response, basically moving away from having police be the responders to crises like mental health crises, you know, moving away from police doing things like mental health checks or wellness checks, because we know that those can go horribly awry. You're just escalating a situation that is already incredibly volatile. And instead, the network and the project puts money into communities and funds community-led teams of mental health professionals and people who are of the community and know the community and are for the community to respond to things like this um, and to actually help people who are going through crises. So I just, I cannot sing the praises of this project enough. I think it's fantastic. Um, and I think you all will really enjoy the interview. They talk about how this kind of model might be replicated in other places around the world. So if this is of interest to organizers, please keep listening. Before we dive into the interview, I just want to shout out the new patrons for this month. This is a donor-funded show. We rely on the generous donations of patrons, people like you, to keep the show going. So if you have just $2 per month to spare, you can get access to the Total Liberation Discord server where myself, Catherine, and Mad Blender host bi-monthly political chats, and those are going really well. We really love having those. So you can sign up to be a sustaining member at patreon.com slash veganvanguard, or you can give us a one-time tip and donation via PayPal. Or you can share our episodes with friends and family, um, and most of all, give us a rating and review on iTunes or whatever podcast app that you listen to. That really, really helps increase our reach, keeps us relevant, keeps us on the charts. Um, and yeah, you're just helping to spread the message that we put out farther and wider by giving us ratings and reviews, positive ones. <laughs> don't give us negative ones. We don't want those. 
So thank you to new patrons Amanda Riley, Jim McStanton, Jasper, Melanie Curtin, Madeline C., Ed Shearer, Gabriel, and Kate Fahi. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, but thank you, Kate. Thank you to everyone who has become a sustaining member. We appreciate it so much. We are working to have our episodes transcribed and also it helped pay for the new, the, the makeover of the show. So that's fantastic. So I think that is all for now. Without further ado, let's get into this interview. Everybody. My name is Asante Hutton. Um, I am a mental health advocate. I, I work at a mental health organization called Stella's Place in Toronto. Um, I'm also the co-founder of the Reach Out Response, um, and we'll see a little bit more about what that is in, in a little bit. Uh, that's what this whole thing is going to be about. Um, beyond that, uh, uh, you know, my advocacy is, is in mental health, um, existing along the lines of uh, mental health, race, uh, poverty, home athletics, music, a lot of different things. Um, I wear many hats and I find myself in many interesting places with many interesting people. And I'm grateful to be here with, uh, with you know, both Rachel and Mexi and anyone listening. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Rachel Bromberg. I am the other co-founder of the Reach Out Response Network. I am also the Canadian National Coordinator of the International Mobile Services Association, which is a service providers network connecting folks across Canada and the United States who are building civilian-led crisis response teams in our community, um, or in our each of our communities, I guess. Um, I also have been working in mental health for about seven years now, um, and I am a law student also. I'm really happy to be here. Amazing. Yeah, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I think the project that you're both heading up is just absolutely amazing. Um, so I guess, uh, first to kind of set the scene for people, let's talk first about the police and about mental health. Um, so could you give us an overview of what kinds of mental health crises are police being dispatched to deal with and what have been the results of police intervention? Yeah. Um, you know, well, as of right now, uh, you know, I, I think in our society, at least westernized society, um, you know, I think I feel confident talking about uh, we sort of dispatch police as a one sized fits all uh, problem solver for, you know, virtually anything that's not a fire or anything that requires immediate uh, medical attention for a physical um, uh, presentation or a physical issue. Um, so in terms of what sorts of crises, uh, you know, police are being dispatched for um, in terms of mental health, I mean, you know, a lot of different things, um, a wide variety of things, everything from, you know, folks who um, might be experiencing, you know, suicidality or, or um, you know, self-harm or, or those sorts of things to, uh, you know, maybe things like someone's hearing voices or, um, you know, maybe, you know, there are delusions happening or there are, are behaviors that we might consider or, or perceive as strange or different. Um, so we might call, you know, the people we know who to call right now, which are the police. And, you know, so um, a lot of those things and, you know, also other presentations, um, you know, sometimes, you know, it is a physical issue. Sometimes it is someone, um, you know, who's going through uh, like a diabetic crisis that, that sometimes can look like a mental health crisis or sometimes it is a, 
um, you know, someone experiencing, you know, the, uh, the effects of substance use or uh, those sorts of things, right? So, um, you know, there are a broad variety of things that police are summoned for in terms of dealing with uh, people who are in crisis or, uh, you know, some level or high levels of distress. So, you know, for us, uh, you know, we, we sort of took a look at it as, you know, what are the outcomes in these interactions? You know, how many calls, first of all, are, are happening uh, to, you know, where, where police are being called because someone is in distress or a crisis of some sort? And then what are the outcomes? And are those outcomes, you know, satisfactory? And I, I know there's been a lot of talk, you know, here in Toronto and here in Canada about, uh, you know, mental health and wellness checks and police showing up and, you know, people dying. And there have been some high profile cases here of uh, even within this past year in 2020, of you know, black folks and indigenous folks and other people of color um, dying uh, during police interactions, sometimes, you know, violently or sometimes in ways that have, you know, thus far been unexplained. So, you know, a lot of times people, uh, what we've heard, are people really setting the bar at did someone die or get hurt, um, which of course is very important for us to be looking at. Uh, but, you know, we want to take it farther than that and say, um, you know, obviously we don't want people to die. Uh, obviously we don't want people to be hurt. Um, but, you know, more than that, we want people to get a, a, a service um, that is useful for them, that can help set them on a path toward a recovery that's meaningful. Yeah, and I think what we've heard from the community, we've done a whole bunch of community consultations um, to hear about what people's experiences have been with police or, or with existing services when they've been in crisis. And what we've heard really consistently from folks is that police response when they're in crisis often makes people feel like criminals. They feel ashamed, they feel stigmatized, they feel afraid, and that having police as first responders to a mental health crisis makes people less likely to reach out for help, particularly those folks from racialized communities that have historically and currently had really difficult relationships with police. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, right? Um, I think in a lot of cases, it can it can really escalate the situation. But, you know, clearly, uh, as you said, I think they're could be a lot more positive and productive outcomes that we should be um, reaching for. So um, how and when did you form Reach Out Toronto as an organization and how is your project developing an alternative to this? So Asante and I used to work together at Stella's Place before I started law school. Um, and both of us have been working with folks in crisis for a number of years. And for me in particular, I've been working um, at suicide prevention services or suicide intervention services, I guess. Um, for a few years. And something that I noticed was a lot of the times when I was talking to folks who are in crisis, who are thinking about suicide, they would not want to share with me um, about how they were feeling or the extent of their suicidal ideation because they were concerned that I would then call 911 and police would show up. And mm -hmm. some of these folks had had negative experiences with police in the past and they didn't want to replicate those experiences um, or some of them you know hadn't but had heard stories and were afraid so I really saw this as the police response to mental health crisis is acting as a barrier for people telling their stories and getting the help that they need so you know when, when Asante and I are working together at Stella's place we had a lot of conversations about this problem and both of us sort of thought 
hey, you know, we, we can do something about this problem. Like there are probably other places around the world that are doing a better job at responding to crisis than we are here at Toronto. There are probably other systems and other models that are doing better. Um, so this was about two years ago now. Um, we started doing some research to learn about alternative crisis response services. And we discovered that indeed there were a number of other cities that were doing a much better job at responding to crisis. We learned about the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon, which has been around for 31 years now. Um, they are a completely non-police response to mental health crisis. They are integrated into the existing emergency system. They're dispatched via 911. Um, and what their team is, is that they pair a mental health crisis worker who could be a peer worker or a mental health clinician, just someone who knows how to work with people in crisis um, and a medic who can focus on physical health needs that folks might have. So they send out the medic and the crisis worker um, to respond to crisis rather than sending out police. And Eugene, Oregon is a much smaller city than Toronto. It's about 170,000 people. And what they found um, is that, you know, over time, CAHOOTS is able to answer between 17 and 20% of all 911 calls in that city. And, you know, last year, 2019, they responded to 24,000 calls. And we really compare that to the city of Toronto, which is much, much larger, um, where police are responding to 30,000 mental health calls every year. So we really, we really saw that there was this alternative model that, you know, CAHOOTS in Eugene was using, that other cities like Olympia, Washington, and Denver, Colorado, and Stockholm, Sweden, and Austin, Texas, and many other cities also um, had these alternative models. So we really wanted to present these kinds of models to the city of Toronto as possibilities that we should be incorporating as well. And you know, at the time, two years ago, when we started doing this work, there wasn't a lot of interest. Um, the, you know, the basic conception among the people in power was everything's fine, what we have is working, we don't need to make any changes. Um, and that really started to change earlier this year um, when five Canadians in mental health crisis died or were killed during um, when they were in crisis and police responded over a period of about 10 weeks, which in Canada is quite unusual. That was a quite a large number of people who were experiencing really bad outcomes um, and dying during these kinds of responses. And all of a sudden, um, the city of Toronto completely did a 180 and suddenly became very interested in alternative crisis response services. So there was a motion made in, in council by the mayor. It was passed unanimously by all city councillors to commission a report on how to build this alternative crisis service. That was in June of this year. Um, and so they, they voted to commission this report, but no one within the city really had any expertise on how to do this kind of project in terms of like a non-police mental health emergency service because it was brand new. You know, they hadn't thought about it before. The motion had passed really quickly. Um, so that's when Asante and I were like, hey, we have a whole bunch of experience and knowledge um, about how to do this. We've connected with tons of cities all across Canada and the U.S. that have built these kinds of teams or in the process of building these kinds of teams. We know how to do this. We can help you. So that sort of 
started us on this period of exponential growth. You know, in May of this year, it was literally just me and Asante. And we officially incorporated our organization as the Reach Out Response Network in July. And basically by this point, you know, it's me, Asante, and 400 other people who are who have become part of our network, who are volunteering with us, who are helping us um, with research, with communications, with like all of the different things that we're doing. Um, and, you know, we've put together six advisory panels of folks with lived experience, of black folks, of indigenous folks, of family members of people with lived experience, of service providers. Um, and we secured a contract with the city of Toronto to do a whole bunch of community consultations. Um, we did 18 town halls, um, 120 individual interviews and two large surveys over a period of about three months. Um, we spoke with black folks, indigenous folks, um, deaf folks, autistic folks, folks experiencing homelessness, folks with developmental disabilities, high school students, lots of people whose voices are not typically heard in building these kinds of services, but who we identify is really important because they're often the people who are using these services. We spoke to close to a thousand people um, and we put together a 92-page report outlining our proposed model, um, both in terms of all the consultations we've done, what we were hearing from the community, and in terms of the research we've done and what we see as the best practices internationally and what works in other cities. So we basically proposed to the city that they build a civilian-led mental health emergency service that would be staffed by mental health workers and peer supporters from the communities they serve um, that would be integrated into 911 dispatch as well as accessible through its own three-digit number for, because we know that some folks are not they don't trust the 911 dispatch system and they want another number to call but we also know that 911 is the number that people know and 911 is, you know, it's really important if you want to divert calls away from the police that you're able to divert them at the source and the source is 911. Um, and we recommended that these new teams be available 24-7 across the city with immediate response times, just like other emergency services, just like police, just like fire, just like ambulance. And our vision is that these civilian-led teams will replace police response to mental health crisis. And, you know, where we're at with that now is we're doing a lot of political networking. Um, we're working with the city to advocate for this model. And the model that we've proposed has, I think, to this point, been mostly adopted by the city and their proposal or by the city staff we're working with. And this proposal is going to go to city council in Toronto um, in early February and it's gonna be voted on and there's a pilot that is being planned to start in January, 2022. So we're excited. Wow, that's <laughs> absolutely fantastic. Yeah, that's so exciting. Sorry, did you say that up until May of this year, it was still just you and Asante, but then yeah. since, wow. And since then it's gone up to 400 people. Yeah, people have been really excited and wanted to get involved. Like we received, like we had an article that was published about us in the Toronto Star, which is the big newspaper in Toronto. And we got so many people emailing us being like, this is a great idea. I want to help. 
Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. I guess that kind of ties into, I had, I had a question I was going to ask later on, but that, um, you know, you've obviously been at this for a while. You, you said you started this a couple of years ago, but since, you know, the, the very publicized murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, uh, Regis Korczynski Paquet, uh, here in Toronto, there's been this growing call to, to defund the police or even abolish the police. Um, so, uh, do you find that that's, that's largely what helped, during this current moment, like during the summer, to have, uh, you know, a lot more politicians and citizens in general be more uh, open and welcoming of your project? I think the short answer to, to that is yes. But I, within that is a lot of nuance um, in the sense of, you know, uh, I, I think that, you know, oftentimes we, we talk about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And then, you know, we start talking about uh, Regis up here in Toronto. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes those issues get conflated because, you know, when we look at George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor, those are police brutality issues. And then we look at Regis Korczynski Paquette and, you know, the, the other, you know, higher profile names, you know, DeAndre Campbell and, um, you know, the, the other names, I won't list them all. Um, but, um, you know, those are mental health things that escalated into, you know, mm-hmm. police brutality or at least, you know, situations where people lost their lives. Um, And so, you know, out of all that, yeah, of course, the defund the police or abolish the police movement, uh, you know, it kind of took hold for for a little bit there. And there are, you know, protests all over the planet. And, you know, everyone kind of like started to, you know, see, uh, uh, you know, the world in a different way in terms of highlighting uh, the kinds of discrimination that does occur for a lot of non-white folks in society in western society in particular and it it created you know kind of a a political wave of um you know politicians wanting to do a lot of things differently um and you know and you know for us you know we we don't really see what we are doing as a defund the police or abolish the police initiative it's more so um you know getting the people who are best able and best equipped to serve uh, folks who are in uh, a crisis or a lot of distress, um, you know, getting people who can serve those people to be the ones serving those people. Um, and as I was saying earlier, you know, we've relied on police for so long to, to be those uh, people who serve people in distress. But um, the reality is that police are trained for a, a much different thing. Um, and it's, it's doing a disservice to police officers as well as um, those being served by police officers to uh, expect them to, uh, you know, take all of the things that they've been trained for and to put that aside and then to act in completely different ways while still wearing the uniform, while still wearing the bulletproof vest, while still carrying the gun and to have, you know, you know useful and, and positive outcomes for uh, people who are in distress. So um, I think a window was opened by, you know, all of the, the deaths here in, in Canada, but also in the States, you know, and those things, of course, got uh, a little blurred together. Um, and for us, you know, with that window of opportunity, it's it's been an opportunity for us to amplify the conversation that we want to have uh, about uh, folks who are in crisis and in distress and how we can best serve them um and serve them in the best ways possible Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, you know, I guess talk a bit about about this model. So what would it look like to take an anti-oppressive and trauma-informed approach to mental health crises? So for us, an anti-oppressive trauma-informed approach is really about focusing on the needs of the people actually using the service and what they need in a particular moment to feel safe and those qualitative outcomes. A lot of the times, you know, when we're talking about these kinds of teams, people talk about things like hospital diversion or diversion away from the criminal justice system or cost savings or things like that. And those things are important, but what's more important in, I guess, our opinion is, you know, the person who is receiving the service, do they feel safe and comfortable and supported? Do they feel like they're being respected? Do they feel like their autonomy and dignity are being promoted? Do they feel like they're being seen as a person rather than just like a problem or a symptom or a diagnosis? Um, Do they feel like they're being coerced? Do they feel unsafe? Do they feel afraid? Or do they feel, you know, calmer? Do they feel like this was a good experience? Do they feel like they would call the service again? Or would they call the service for a friend if a friend was in crisis? Those are the things that we really care about. And we think it's really important that, you know, we know one of the things we heard from the community when we did all these consultations was that a lot of services that exist right now are just not resourced sufficiently well to give people the actual time and space they need when they're in a crisis to be able to share their story and calm down and de-escalate really at their own pace. And we think that that's something that's really important. You know, it can take, especially for people who have experienced trauma, it can take a long time to build trust, especially when someone is in crisis. It can take a long time to help them feel safe enough to even think about what are the next steps here to be safe. So making sure that that's built in to the system. And I think one way of doing that and building the system in that way is to make sure that people with lived experience, people who have had their own mental health challenges, um, are incorporated into all levels of the organization, including in leadership positions and including working on the front lines of these teams because those are the people who really know what it's like to be in crisis what is helpful for folks who are in crisis and of course who also have you know lots of training um in de-escalating these kinds of situations and providing resources and things like that but those are the folks who are really able to form a really genuine connection with service users and know how to support them most effectively yeah Absolutely. So, I I mean, I guess I'm wondering about some of the logistics. Um, Like I was saying just before we started recording, this this podcast has a a global audience. Um, So I'm wondering if there's anyone listening who are, you know, organizers or interested in maybe replicating a model like this in their city. I guess take us through some of the logistics, right? So um, you stress the importance of uh, the response teams being civilian-led and community-based. So um, how are responders chosen? Um, I guess they're working for the city, so they would be salaried. Um, But yeah, just uh, tell us a bit more about this model and how it could be potentially replicated elsewhere. Yeah, so there are a few different models that kind of do the same thing, but it just depends on what the city chooses. So one way would be to have the new service run directly through the city. So some cities like Albuquerque or Chattanooga 
Um, I think also Northampton, Massachusetts, a um, few other places. Oh, and Sacramento, of course, Sacramento. Um, what they've done is just created a brand new city department to operate these services. So the staff of the teams would be city employees. Um, what Toronto's doing is a little bit different than that. It's more similar to the CAHOOTS model, but expanded. Um, so what Toronto is gonna be doing is contracting with a number of different agencies. They call them anchor agencies um, to operate the service. And one of the advantages of that is that you're, you're choosing agencies that have built trust in the communities that they're in that already have expertise in providing mental health care, for example, to particular populations. Um, so the city would sort of set standards in terms of what it's the service doing and, you know, there would still be one number for all of the different teams to be accessed, but you would have those agencies that would be hiring and employing the people that are on the front lines. So that's, that's one way to do it. Um, in terms of, so we, you know, we've seen some models that are, I mean, a small number of models that are volunteer led and those models are not nearly as effective as the ones that have paid staff. We think particularly when we're employing peer workers, it's really important to make sure that these are real jobs, good jobs that pay reasonable salaries with mm -hmm. good benefits. Um, that's really important just in terms of retention for for your staff um, and, and also recognizing, you know, this is a really emotionally challenging job. You're working with people at some of the darkest moments of their lives. So making sure that you have adequate support for your staff is really important. And then another thing that I just want to sort of flag for anyone who might be interested in bringing this kind of model to their communities, what we see from the research is that having a model that is integrated into existing public safety infrastructure, in particular 911 dispatch, is really important because, like I said before, if you want to make sure that, you know, these calls are not continuing to go to the police, that they're being diverted away from police to a new service, that there needs to be a way to divert those calls at the source. Um, what we've seen is that, that models that just have you know their own separate 10 digit number that are operated completely separately they can make some difference on the margins for people who know about them um but what we know from the data is that the majority of people who are calling 911 about someone in a mental health crisis it's not the person themselves that's calling it's someone else and those folks you know about 30 percent of the time it's just a bystander it's not someone who even knows the person in crisis it's just a person who sees you know, something going on, maybe behavior that they classify in their mind as odd behavior, concerning behavior, and they call 911 about that. And, you know, what is really important to us, rather than sort of creating a two-tiered system where you have the high information consumers, those, those people call the non-police service, and then all the other people get the police we really want to make sure that the service is integrated so that everyone gets mm -hmm. the non-police service and there aren't these kinds of biases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so right now it's mostly a Toronto thing. Do you see this perhaps being taken up, uh, you know, across Ontario or more broadly across Canada or 
Yeah, like there are lots of teams, particularly in the U.S. The U.S. has been <laughs> more progressive on this than Canada, uh, which is a weird sentence to say, <laughs> I think. But, you know, there are lots of cities across the U.S. and Canada that are in the process of building these kinds of teams and lots of teams that we know about in the United States that have either just launched. San Francisco launched their team um, a few weeks ago or that are going to be launching their teams soon. So like Sacramento will be launching soon. Um, New York City will be launching their team in February. Um, Houston is going to be launching their team soon. Portland is either recently has or is about to. Um, Oakland, California as well. And we've gotten emails from lots of different people um, in other cities in Ontario that have been interested in hearing more about our work because they want to bring something similar to their city. And there have been a number of motions at various city councils. Um, I think in Durham, I think in Peel, um, maybe in York Region too. There, there are some places near nearish Toronto and then Ottawa and a few other places that are interested in also building these kinds mm-hmm. of teams. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm someone who like I suffered from depression and I, there was a period of my life where I um, did have suicidal ideation or I was suicidal, but, um, like you said, I, I didn't feel comfortable even telling my therapist that because I had it in my mind that that meant that she would need to call the police and that I was going to be committed or something like that. So I do think that changing the way that we approach these things would make it a lot easier for people to come forward and to, um, you know, get the help that they really need. So I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, you mentioned that you had written a 92 page report. Is that something that is, um, you know, for internal use only, or is that something that maybe other organizers could take a look at or, um, great question. We didn't plant this question for the record. (laughs) It's on our website. So if you, if you want to go to our website, reach out toronto.ca, um, there is a page, I think the page is called the resources page and our report is available there, we also have, for people who don't want to read a 92-page document, there is a seven-page summary of that document also on our website. Fantastic. You've thought of it all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So you mentioned that, uh, I guess, Toronto is going to be voting on this in February. So that's uh, that's amazing. Um, and you also mentioned that there's a lot of people who are reaching out who are interested in helping. I'm just wondering for anyone who's listening to this who might be in the um, Toronto area or in Ontario or in general, um, you know, how can people who are interested support and help to advance this work? That is another great question. So our website, again, good place to start, reach out toronto.ca. Um, you can, you know, there's a form there if you want to volunteer with us and you don't need to be in Toronto to volunteer with us. We have folks across Canada and in parts of the U.S. who are volunteering with us as well. Um, you can follow us on social media, um, we are at reachout underscore to on Twitter and Instagram and Asante. What's our Facebook thing? Um, what what is Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can look us up. Reach out Toronto. Um, you know, network Toronto. So throw that in the search bar. You'll be able to find this. Yeah, and we have some events. They'll be again on our website on our events page. Um, you can also donate to us. We are entirely volunteer run, but we do provide honoraria to our advisory panels, especially like for black folks and indigenous folks and service users. Um, So that again, through our website. Um, We also do a lot of different presentations for community groups. Um, So if you want us to like do a presentation for a group that you're a part of that might be interested in hearing more about our work, 
um, you can email us um, at hello at reachouttoronto.ca. Um, and for those of you who are not in Toronto, but might be interested in starting up a like a similar organization or advocating for a similar team to be built in your city, please reach out to me. I will share all the information I have and all the resources I have and all of the research we've done. Super happy oh to Oh my help. gosh. Amazing. Yeah. And for people who are in Toronto, like call or email your city councilor and tell them that you support the work we're doing. Um, or, you know, give a deposition at the, you know, when this, when this is going to be voted on um, at council, give a deposition or give a deposition to the Toronto Police Services Board also, um, and tell them that you believe in the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. So I'll put all the links uh, to um, all of your social media and your email address in the description box for this episode. Uh, so people can check that out and definitely reach out. Um, so that's all the questions that I had. Is there anything else that you would like to add or bring up um, before we end this conversation? I think for me, I mean, obviously the first thing is, um, you know, thank you um, uh, for having us on and, you know, for giving us a platform to, to talk about what we're doing. Um, you know, uh, apart from that, you know, we, I, I think in terms of what we've been able to do, there are a lot of lessons to, to learn here um, for, you know, a lot of us who do care about things passionately and do want to advocate. And, and you know, so I've been thinking a lot, you know, people often ask us, how did you do it? Um, and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, how did we do it? And, you know, it really did start with us, um, you know, talking at work a lot about, um, you know, just this, this issue that we cared about, um, you know, doing a lot of research and, you know, uh, you know, we were kind of ready for, for, you know, people say the right, um, you know, being in the right place at the right time. And we were kind of ready for that, um, you know, because mm -hmm. there had been, you know, a lot of conversations uh, between us about this issue. Um, you know, Rachel had done a bunch of research. Um, I, you know, both of us had been making a bunch of connections. Uh, so when it came time to actually start moving, we, we had a good foundation. That being said, um, you know, we've been figuring a lot of things out on the fly uh, as we go. Uh, but it really started with our passion and, and then, you know, just kind of, doing things and you know uh you know you know tweeting out to to our followers uh, about this issue and you know getting them on board first and then them telling their people and you know getting a whole ripple effect going and you know from that uh you know turn into a lot of community engagement uh you know we we set up uh you know we we made it easy for people to be able to share uh their opinions with their local politicians and leaders uh, by setting up uh, an email tool called um, an email zap, uh, which essentially it, it's it's kind of like a change.org petition kind of thing where, you know, you have the choice or not to write your own personal message, but, you know, you sign the thing and it goes off to your local politician. So, um, you know, the politicians started hearing about us and what we were talking about that way. And it just created this groundswell of, of um, engagement, both, um, you know, politically, but also um, in a variety of different communities and you know we we the rest was kind of pushed by um you know uh the, the folks who started to engage with us and you know we just kind of did the work after that and did a lot of engaging um and you know cold calling and well these days cold emailing uh you know politicians and other leaders and you know asking for advice and you know sharing what we knew and what we had and it all just started to coalesce and become the thing that it is now 
So, you know, I, I say all this to, to say to others that if there is something you care about, you really can make a difference if you, you know, really, you know, set your mind to it and, you know, put a, a good strategy behind it, engage others um, who are passionate, but also don't be afraid to engage with uh, politicians and those who have influence and, 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 and cachet and things like that, because you'd be surprised how willing they would be to talk about the thing that you care about, um, as long as you approach them, you know, relatively nicely about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, behind the scenes, a lot of the folks that we see on TV giving speeches um, are actually really easy to talk about when you have them one on one or to talk to rather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a fantastic message. Um, there's, you know, so many listeners that um, feel like they're interested in doing something, but they can't really figure out what or, uh, you know, some sometimes people feel like there's just not that much they can actually do, like they have big ideas, but they don't feel that, you know, within this current society that they can make that much change. And I think that, yeah, this just really goes to show you that um, if you follow your passions and just, you know, start where you are, right? You, you both just started, just the two of you starting where you are, doing the research, putting ideas out there, and then everything just kind of snowballed from there. So that's just absolutely amazing and really encouraging for anyone who has has ideas about ways that they want to change um, the way that we're doing things to help people. You know, that's, yeah, really inspirational. So thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really amazing. And I think that people are really going to like this episode and get a lot out of it. And I hope that this kind of model starts to just spread like wildfire um, all across the world and that, uh, yeah, we can really change the way that we're responding to these kinds of crises. So thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And thank you so much for having us. 